Welcome to the Disaster Tough Podcast, where we talk about emergency management by emergency managers. We share stories, lessons, and tips to help keep you moving forward. I am John Scardina, the host. I share my experience as a former federal emergency response official who's responded to some of the most extreme disasters over the past decade. I now lead a private emergency management firm called Doberman Emergency Management that focuses on emergency planning, mitigation, and response. This is episode three. Welcome back, everybody. So in the first two episodes of the season, we address coronavirus, what is happening in the world right now, some, some of those outliers that people may not be paying attention to, like your country of operations plan and your delegations of authorities, or dealing with supply chain routes, thinking of those needs. And in episode two, we talked about the data of testing of the cases and the death tolls and why we can trust that data and why we need that data. And in this episode, we want to bring it all together and talk about situational awareness. In the first episode, I kind of alluded to this, right? Saying that we still live in a world of ever-increasing threat of changing seasons and you know other issues that we have to uh, constantly face. And that's okay because we are getting better and better at responding to those. But COVID-19 uh, is in this world of a multiple threat scenario. So today, Craig Fugate, I read on NPR that he said, hope is not a plan. He was talking about the hurricane season. And I totally agree with that. Now, Craig and I uh, don't see eye to eye on everything, but he does have a lot of really good ideas, and I support those ideas. He talks about, um, you know, so what? Why is it important? What do I need to know, and what do I need to do right now? He talks about speed. I addressed that in the, the first episode, talking about the executive director of WHO mentioning that as well. So between speed and why is it important and addressing multiple threat scenarios simultaneously, you know, this is really, really good for us to focus on. What I would talk about right now is looking to the future. We're addressing COVID-19, social distancing, shelter in place protocols. We're really trying to attack that. And it is working. We're starting to see the curve change a little bit. The healthcare system is being relieved of the influx of patients because not as many people are being sick as originally anticipated. So that's great. We just have to keep attacking it. We don't want to say, oh, hey, look, I never got sick. So there was never really a problem. Well, that's not really appropriate, right? Let's keep attacking this. But now we need to start looking ahead. Hurricane season is just around the corner. NOAA has come out and said, hey, we suspect higher hurricane season. There's already a tropical depressions. As I speak, I was looking at one today in the Gulf. So what are we going to do about that? How are we going to address those concerns with COVID-19, with a pandemic, and move forward? So I want to address some ideas that I will be working with my clients on, the Doberman Emergency Management there in the Gulf, and things I want you to think about, a pandemic with a large-scale disaster, right? So you need to address mass care. You need to address how people are going to be spaced out in those shelters, a minimum six feet apart. There's gonna be a multifamily scenario. There's gonna be little kids running around. There's gonna be all these extra people in a close proximity if they need a shelter. You need to worry about your volunteer staff. So those VOADs who go out there and they wanna help the community, that's phenomenal, they should do that. But how are you going to help them not get sick? You don't want to have a scenario where all these people are coming in to a community to help out and then they get sick, 
right? We don't want that to happen. I think about what happened in Mexico when there was an earthquake. They went in there and they tried to help out. They tried to attack the situation, but without proper PPE, you know, the helmets and everything else they need, people got hurt trying to find people. And so they've had to change how we address disaster response. If you might be aware of community emergency response teams, CERT, they're trying to help out the general public at least learn a very basic understanding of how to help. We could talk about another time if CERT teams are effective or not. I know certainly my firefighter buddies have conflicting uh, ideas on that. Um, one quick tangent, if you go to the East Coast, like uh, Maryland, Virginia, the firefighter teams, I know California as well actually, uh, have worked really, really closely with those uh, CERT teams. And so they raise their confidence in working with them. But in any case, uh, that's a digression. If we are trying to figure out how to help out in a large-scale disaster with volunteer groups, whether it's CERT teams or whether it's the Red Cross or uh, Salvation Army, whoever, who's going in there and meeting with people directly, how do you protect them? How do you make sure that you have something in place? Do you have supplies sufficient now so that when volunteers come in, you say, okay, here's your mask, here's your gloves, this is a uh, you know, decontamination process for when uh, you're done with the day. How are you monitoring those people who are not getting sick? And more importantly, and I say more importantly, they're the heroes on the front line, the first responders who are going out, they're pulling people out of the mud, even the National Guard who are in support of pulling people out. How are you going to protect them? What procedures do you need to put in place that are not in place now? You know, we try to do a lot to take care of first responders because we know that there's things in the water that can hurt them if there's cuts. There's tragically stories of people dying from that. But we need to go one step further. We need to go and make sure that we are looking at the level of impact of helping people versus the level of impact of our first responders getting sick. If you have a population of first responders who are sick who can't respond, well, then now you're starting to shift into a bigger problem. So do you need to change your tempo and speed? First responders always take a higher level of risk because of the nature of their job. But at what point are we too much risk? And what point is it too low of a risk? It's hurricane season, so it's warmer, humid weather. There's reports that this helps destroy the fat around the RNA strand of COVID-19 that destroys it. So maybe that's good. How are you working with your public health officials to make sure that you're implementing those uh, right procedures, again, for the first responders, for the VOADs, and for that support staff? If you're with FEMA or another a federal agency and you're planning on sending people down under the Stafford Act who are going to be working in the Capitol, they're coming all over the country, how are you protecting them? You need to think more about protecting the health of the workers. I was in a disaster where my staff was in a room with circulated air, no windows, and just germs flying around, right? Well, that happened. Somebody got sick, and before they caught it, and before we caught it and had them go home, or at least back to the hotel to recover, you know, it started to go within the, that little population of that room. And we got sick, and other people got sick, and it made the rounds a couple times. And it was just the worst, right? And that was in a disaster we weren't as hyper-aware of uh, germs as we are right now, right? We're always aware of, you know, potential issues with public health, and we want to make sure that we're practicing good hygiene, but even more now because the impacts could be more severe. Instead of people having colds or 
a flu for a few days, you know, they could be hospitalized or worse. So how are we going to take care of them? So you got to think about that. If you're in logistics and your, your job is to set up a JFO or your job is to set up a joint field office, um, infield, you know, tents, whatever, how are you dealing with circulation? Are you trying to find properties that can deal with that? Are you working with, you know, the health department to make sure that it is decontaminated before you get in there, make sure it's clean? Uh, how are you doing with that process? The emergency planner for your team, whose job is to go in there and look at continuity of operations, are they working with sanitation staffs and maintenance staff to make sure that facilities are taken care of, not just talking about shelter in place or evacuation routes, but now you really have to think about that public health concern. So that's something to address. I want to share a story about dealing with uh, new threats. You know, in Japan, you sleep on the floor. You sleep on these uh, futons, which is basically like big mats on the floor. And so even though my roommate was on the opposite side of the room and our, you know, in our really small apartment, uh, one night in the middle of the night, I feel him shaking me. Like, hey, man, wake up. Hey, man, wake up. I'm like, what in the world is he doing? And as I woke up, I realized that he wasn't like shoving me with his hand. He was still across the room, freaking out, screaming. And uh, we were like going through this wave of an earthquake. And I still remember right as I woke up, I realized the dresser was going to follow me. So I, I, I put the dresser against the wall and we just kind of wrote it out like um, not shaking, but more of like waves. At that time in my life, I had no idea about earthquakes. I'd never really experienced one. I didn't think about them too much, especially because the earthquakes that I had dealt with in Japan up to that point were mostly during the day. I hadn't lived in Japan too long at that point. So when that happened, uh, you know, my roommate was freaking out. I was kind of laughing because he was screaming so much. Uh, we weren't really in too much danger. But it did teach me that, you know, there's things in your life that come out of nowhere that you're not expecting. Don't make a pandemic hurricane response or a large-scale disaster response one of those things. Like, you can't get stuck in the current disaster and not think about what's coming up. States like Louisiana, Texas, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, Florida, South Carolina, even North Carolina, like those Gulf states that are going to be dealing with the hurricane, that's going to be something that you really need to think about. You need to look at those plans and reassess those plans. So I think I've really driven that home. Just make sure that you go through and uh, look at your plans, okay? Uh, for the second half of this podcast, I just want to go through and answer some questions that people sent me um, asking me, you know, what next. I'm just going to pull this up real quick and kind of answer it on the fly and see where it leads for us. Here's the question. As an emergency manager, what can the government do now and in the future to be better prepared for this kind of emergency? Talking about COVID-19. So that's a really good question. I mean, it's a multi-level question, right? What can you do now and what can you do in the future? Well, you're seeing what we can do now, right? One thing that we really should be doing is you should have somebody on your staff. I'm doing it. Start collecting those notes. What it was like in the moment, the decisions that you're making, so that in your after-action report is much more fulfilling. There's going to be so many lessons learned with COVID-19. I've been saying this for a while now in my inner circle, that COVID-19 is bad, but it could be a lot worse. 
this is a really good dry run for a complete system failure. What I mean by that is, you know, we've had to shut a lot of things down, but what happens if it gets shut down without uh, a control, right? Without the government, without emergency managers saying, okay, we need to stop supply chain routes or we need to do this. But what happens if, you know, there's a total communications failure where we can't get information relayed or something, you know, really bad happens. So we really need to take these lessons learned now so that we can address uh, other large scale global disasters in the future. There will be other things that come up. And if we don't address them, if we don't learn from COVID-19 now, well, what's the point, right? It'll be a lot harder to go back and say, okay, what did I learn? Each day as an emergency manager feels like a lifetime and a disaster. It goes by so quick and yet, you know, a few days in, you think you've been there for weeks, right? And you know what we're talking about. And we're, what, two months into this. So make sure you're taking really good notes about what happened, why you made that decision, and what was the result of that decision. So as you're going through, put that AAR together. That's something really important. Another thing that you can be doing right now is talking about your uh, recovery plan. Every disaster response should, be, should begin with the idea of recovery in mind. That's how you become more disaster tough is thinking, how can I address the problem now? And how can I make sure that our long-term recovery, that timeline gets shortened? How can we make sure that we're not in this mess again? So looking at that AAR, looking at um, what you can do. As you address those uh, recovery operations that you're trying to figure out, you'll want to go through and address how to open things up properly, right? That's what they're trying to figure out right now. I read a report that said if everything opened up May 1st, it really did open up May 1st, then 97% of the economy would be able to come back. Most people were able to last to May 1st. But that quickly changes to June 1st. That one extra month, there's a lot of companies out there that don't have that saving. 97% return rate on May 1st becomes now only 79% return of the economy on June 1st. It goes more dramatic from there. So how do you balance opening up the economy so that people's livelihoods are not impacted uh, so that people can survive? Because we are talking now about survival, not just survival of the healthcare system, but literal survival of life, food, shelter, clothing, you know, those kinds of things. We're starting to see a higher suicide rate. There was just a report that I saw today from a doctor in New York that committed suicide. So we have to address the physical health and also the mental health as well. There's a report of 80% of restaurants could not come back. That's a huge problem. That impacts, obviously, those restaurants, those families, but it also impacts those farmers. It impacts the people who provide packaging to the farmers. So the farmers can't give out food, then their suppliers for bags and for the truckers, the gas coming. I mean, there's so many people that are impacted if restaurants go under. That's why the restaurants make a lot of news right now, even though companies like myself or other companies, small companies, had to make shifts, they impact so many different things by them going out of business. FEMA estimates that 40% of all small businesses go out of business from a large-scale disaster. Well, that's usually localized, right? That's localized to a state or several counties. Well, when you're in a global pandemic and you're dealing with 40% of small businesses can't survive, 
Now you're talking about a huge portion of the economy that's impacted. Again, that's food for families. That's that's shelter for families. All those rental properties, people that take the big risk and buy a rental property and start to survive off of uh, apartments. Well, if people can't pay, then they're also impacted. So it, it becomes a snowball effect. We want to change that. We want to make sure that these people are taken care of. So how do you open up the economy? We really need to think about all these systems and you need to think about it as a snowball effect. And you need to think about it from a mental health perspective, right? You also need to worry about the healthcare system, of course, because if they get inundated, it's like game over, right? So how do you balance the game over scenario where you can't help people if they get sick because they're too inundated, but if people are not living their life, then they're dying anyways. So there's, there's a balance there. What I would start off with is the lifelines from FEMA. The lifelines from FEMA, right? So you got safety and security, food, water, shelter, which we've been talking a lot about, health and medical, again, talking a lot about that, energy, which we haven't really addressed yet, communications, transportation, and I think the last one's hazardous materials, right? Hazmat. So as you're going through those things and you're talking about essential functions, um, how are you going to you know, address each of those for your sector? Let me just walk through these lifelines as if you're an emergency manager for a college because these can still apply to you, right? Safety and security, okay? Colleges are looking at how to open campuses back up. You should have two plans in place, right? You should have the plan of if everybody comes back, how are you going to do social distancing for all the classes? How are you going to deal with possible protests from students who don't want to deal with the social distancing or want to do parties, uh, want to get out there and have fun? How are you going to address um, them, helping them out to make sure they're safe, but also not creating this hostile environment either? How are you going to deal with the safety of your uh, professors and the lab workers and uh, the maintenance staff and everybody else that gets involved where there's in-person classes again. Food, shelter, clothing, student populations, especially small college campuses have to address the, the financial impact of students coming back and wanting to eat at the campus, whether they have dorms or the, there's uh, food courts or whatever. How are you going to make sure that those places are healthy for them to eat? and make sure that the students are safe, making sure that the students can eat. If there's students back, you have to make sure that they can survive, right? You have a requirement to protect them. Health and medical. So how are you going to triage students if there's a influx in cases? Let's say the decision from the administrator says, hey, we're gonna open up campus, okay? Well, now I have to worry about my dorms, right? I have to worry about my classes. How do I track the cases of the, the student body, right? If, if they're sick, I'm going to quarantine. What places are going to impact? How do I uh, talk to my students without coming up as this overly authoritative figure, but at the same time where they can take it seriously and they can act like adults? So again, they can think about that. Are you communicating with your local hospitals to say, hey, we have a student population. There could be an impact. So that's going to be your first plan. Your second plan is a phased approach where the university says, okay, we're going to do more online schooling. We're going to do virtual classes, whatever. So that'll make life easier for you on a safety and health perspective.
but it could impact the logistics of food being delivered to the campus. The vendors at the college are not going to order food, so that could impact those contracts. If you're doing a phased approach, are you ordering the right amount of food? Are you working with those vendors to make sure that those contracts still stay in place? Let's uh, talk about energy. So students, gas, gas for the university, electricity concerns. Have you shut everything down where you haven't been testing your systems? Usually, like on big campuses, we'll test diesel at least once a week. We have diesel generators to back that up. How are you dealing with that? Now you're talking about energy and efficiency of the campus. Other things with utilities, if you've shut things down and you have to turn them back on, water systems, you know, are you working with your public utilities to make sure that there's safe drinking water and there isn't things in the pipeline that are really screwing that up? Thinking about sanitizing everything, decontamination of classrooms, of public spaces, of doors. Do you have the maintenance staff that have all the proper PPE and chemicals? You should be really working with your facility staff to make sure that you know, CDC guidelines are followed through. Communications. Communicating to the campus, to the student body. How is that happening? Is it text messages? Is it emails? Um, you know, there's probably should be already something in place because, uh, you know, of the pandemic. But how are you going to relay information saying, hey, either we're open or we're opening just these classes or these um, dorm rooms? Uh, how are you going to put that in place where there isn't either panic of, oh my gosh, like, do I have to switch schools because things aren't opening for me? You know, you could be dealing with a lot of uh, other problems of students investing a lot of time into their education and all of a sudden they, you know, they have to deal with the mental health of, you know, my life is impacted coming back from the summer. Thinking again of that authoritative perspective, how are you talking to them? Are you working with marketing teams to make sure that there's good communication, whether it's social media blasts or emails or whatever, you know, general information that you can send out to the public so that students know? Are you working with your student body presidents that really understand their generation's way of communicating? How are you going to make it innovative for them? Uh, transportation. Okay, you're now you're opening up buses, you're opening up public transportation, Maybe you have shared vehicles or shared bicycles on campus. Are those being cleaned? How often are you making sure that safe transportation options uh, open for the student body? Remember the faculty and support staff. Uh, are you going to be able to practice social distancing in a parking lot? If I have classes starting at 8 and I know that it's in this one part of campus, if I have everybody show up and are walking down that parking lot, even if I have the social distancing in place, well, 400 people park and are walking in at the same time, you're not doing social distancing, right? How are you going to protect them? How are you going to make sure that there's enough spaces available where they can properly show up and be taken care of? Hazmat, this one's an easy one for college campus because there really shouldn't be an impact of dealing with that, that hazmat besides uh, procedures that have already been in place. If you have testing, if you have other labs, uh, your maintenance is going to make sure that they have uh, proper procedures to take care of that. My one thing is you might have to order a lot more supply to take care of the sanitizing of the campus. And so when you have larger quantities, that could attract some unwanted uh, attention there if somebody's trying to get a large quantity of a chemical, talking about terrorism which is not a fun topic to really address, but is something really important. 
I did WMD testing and the process of terrorists getting certain chemicals and how they would disperse those chemicals. Now, a college campus really wasn't the scenario that we were looking at, but anytime you have a large amount of quantity, you have to take extra precautions of making sure that it gets handled correctly and there's no accidents or anything intentional. So think about that as well. That's the process I would go through right now of if I'm going to open up, compare it to the seven lifelines or the community lifelines for FEMA, look at how you can address that and uh, write up plans for COVID-19 or pandemic response in concurrent with another large-scale disaster. If you're in California, it's going to be wildfires. If you're in hurricane season coming up, if you're dealing still with flooding in the Midwest or tornadoes or a large-scale man-made incident, how do you deal with an active shooter situation? Right, We just uh, saw one in Canada, unfortunately. How are you dealing with that with a pandemic? So these are uh, really important questions to ask. I would look that over, look over, again, the community lifelines, which is safety and security, food, shelter, and clothing, three, health and medical, four, uh, energy, five, communications, six, transportation, and seven, hazardous material. Look over that uh, and address those concerns. I hope you guys uh, are staying safe out there. I'm John Scardina, again, with the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Please send me your questions. I'd be happy to answer them on here or an email. Uh, our email address is info at DobermanEMG.com. Again, that's info at DobermanEMG.com.